It's Wednesday, July the 7th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen, I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. Well, I can lay claim to that rather uh, mouthy title, that long title, it's hard to say it in one breath. I'm not the only Hoover fellow who is in the podcasting business these days. And rather than recite each and every podcast we do, it's probably best that you go to the Hoover uh, Institution's website, which is www.hoover.org. Click on the tab that says publications, then go to the one that said podcast and check it out for yourself. We cover economics, education, history, foreign policy, culture, you name it, we're into it. You subscribe to any and all the podcasts. You can also sign up for a monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcast to you each month. Hoover Podcast is one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is my colleague, Daniel Heil. Daniel Heil, or Danny to his friends, is a Hoover Policy Fellow. His focus is the federal budget, tax policy, and federal anti-poverty programs. He's also written on the perils of telecommunication regulations and the economic effects of e-business. Danny Heil served as Governor Jeb Bush's economic policy advisor during the 2016 presidential campaign, counseling him on the federal budget, tax policy, and the federal anti-poverty programs. Danny holds a master's degree in public policy with a specialization in economics and American politics from Pepperdine University. He is a Californian, though his body is in Washington, D.C. His heart is particular in Chavez Ravine. Danny, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, thanks for having me, Bill. Always a pleasure. So we have had uh, in the past, in the 1960s, the Great Society, LBJ's run at expanding government. Ronald Reagan wrote a book, and I think it was 1968, Danny, in which he uh, 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 laid out what he called the Creative Society, which was going in just the opposite direction, which would be pulling people away from government. And now here we are in the year 2021, looking at the possibility of the Entitlement Society uh, based on something called the American Families Plan. Why don't we begin this, Danny, by having you explain to us briefly what is the American Families Plan, and then let's talk about how actually it would uh, sort of make its way into American life. Sure, Bill. Well, uh, the the American Families Plan was proposed a couple months ago by by Joe Biden. It, It follows largely what he proposed during the campaign. Uh, and it encompasses a whole range of different types of entitlement policies. So this includes expanded child tax credits, um, enhanced uh, daycare credits, child care subsidies uh, for uh, uh, low-income families and, and middle-income families, uh, a paid family medical leave, universal daycare, uh, free college tuition for community colleges. Um, the list goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some, what the administration is saying is this going to they're going to spend about one point eight trillion dollars over ten years on these programs. And so, what we've uh, done recently, my colleague John Cogan and I, we've we've kind of dug in a little bit more deeply into what these policies would do, both to the number of people who receive government assistance, and also mm-hmm. what it would do to the federal budget. Um, and and so, Joe Biden's plan, uh, it, it, the, the biggest takeaway from it is really that. It's not well targeted, that this is going to people across the income spectrum that uh, I, I mentioned paid family medical leave. There's no mm-hmm. means to that. Uh, the Affordable Care Act expansions that are included, and that's one I didn't even mention, uh, that's going to bring people up to $200,000 may qualify for it. Right. Uh, and so it's an expensive plan, but it's also a plan uh, that, that isn't really geared towards uh, relieving poverty or doing things like that but it's geared towards middle income and upper middle income voters. Um, and, and that really is a, a different beast than what we saw with say the Great Society. This is much more similar to uh, say social security and things like that and, and perhaps mm-hmm. Medicare, uh, where it's really just a, a middle-class entitlement that the administration thinks is gonna get them votes. 
Right. Uh, so so a few of the numerical highlights, so a few of the highlights, Danny, that you and John Cogan uh, point out, uh, you claim that it will add 21 million, mostly middle class Americans to the entitlement rolls. Uh, you guys wrote that uh, more than half of the nation's working age households would uh, depend on the federal government. 50 percent of all married couple children would receive federal retirement benefits and more than 80 percent of single parent households would be on entitlement rolls. Yeah. And, and and with those things, you know, the, the, the low income Americans already are on government assistance programs. You know, there's food stamps there or SNAP. Uh, there's cash welfare assistance. There's Medicaid. There's a host of these. And so mm-hmm. uh, what, what, what this plan really does is it, it provides these benefits to middle income voters. Um, and, and what what we what we show is not only does it does it go to middle income voters, but just in the dollar amount terms that the, the majority of the benefits are going to them. Um, and so it, it's something where uh, in, in a time when we're already running trillion dollar deficits to say now we're going to propose these massive new entitlements to middle class voters. Uh, really, what we're doing is saying, well, in the future, middle class and middle income Americans are going to have to pay higher taxes to pay for these. Um, right. And that's sort of the thing that he hasn't talked about is, is someone at some point you're going to have to pay for these. And and within the American Families Plan, Joe Biden is saying, well, we're going to raise taxes on high income voters. So he's saying we're going to get rid of some of the uh, the tax breaks that the 2017 tax law had in place. And uh, we're going to uh, go after bigger tax enforcement efforts. We're going to give more money to the IRS to fund it. But all of those things combined aren't even enough to fund it over 10 years. Um, and and when you add on top the fact that we're already running trillion dollar deficits, sort of the logical conclusion is eventually if middle income voters are receiving these benefits, they're going to probably be paying higher taxes in the long run. Now, you and John Cogan wrote, quote, contrary to Mr. Biden's assertion that his plan does not, doesn't add a single penny to our deficits. Those are the president's words. Doesn't add a single penny to our deficits. His plan would add more than a trillion dollars to the national debt over the next decade. Now, that's a that's a that's not a, a mistake of uh, you know, forgetting to carry the one. That's a twelve zero difference in thought here. So, uh, how does yeah. Mr. Biden get to revenue neutral or uh, or deficit well, neutral, yeah. and you guys get and you end up with twelve zeros? There's a lot of gimmicks in his plan. Uh, the, the, the one of the biggest gimmicks that we note is the expanded child tax credit. Now, uh, in 2017, and the tax law uh, that, that President Trump passed, that there was a, a child tax credit went from a thousand dollars up to two thousand dollars for all children right. under seventeen. Uh, and what Joe Biden is proposing is to increase it to permanently to uh, $3,600 or, uh, until through 2025 to $3,600 for children under five and $3,000 for children five to 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what we note is that Joe Biden's ta- plan actually says it's going to go away in 2026. And, and that just is politically nonsensical. And the reason why he does it, the reason why they don't say it's a permanent provision in the plan is because in 2026, the tax law, the 2017 tax law expires. And right. so it would be incredibly expensive to maintain this $3,600 tax credit for, for children under five and 3000 uh, for other children. Um, and so instead, they just say it's going to go away. Well, that would represent a massive year-over-year tax increase for, for low-income families. Uh, they'd be going from getting a $3,600 tax benefit down to maybe 1000 but that 1000 tax dollar benefit wouldn't even be uh, refundable. So for low-income families, you're talking about a massive tax increase potentially. Um, and, and so we, we know that's just a nonsense goal. So that adds another $500 billion. But Biden doesn't stop there. Biden's, uh, Biden says it won't add a penny to the deficit. But actually, it, even by his own math, it would take 15 years for this to be deficit neutral. And so he can't even get it within the standard 10-year budget window. Uh, and then there are other things. There are uh, the, the some of the, the tax increases to high-income uh, individuals. So one of them is uh, expanding the net investment income tax 
to more business income. And the net investment in income tax was something that uh, was included in the Affordable Care Act way back in 2010. Um, and and what, the, what the net investment income tax is supposed to do is it's supposed to sort of replicate the Medicare payroll taxes on high income earners uh, earning business income. And so what they do is they take the revenue that they're expecting to get from this expanded, from expanding the net and actually apply it to Medicare, the trust fund, to extend the life of the trust fund. But they also say that it counts against the American Families Plan spending. So they're really double counting the money. And this isn't something new. This is something that, in fact, in the Affordable Care Act, they did the exact same thing uh, with some of their other tax increases. And so it's sort of a standard tax gimmick, but it is a gimmick. They're, they're counting the money twice. And so when you add all of those different things up, uh, it's pretty clear when, when you get down to it that this would increase uh, federal deficits over 10 years by more than a trillion dollars. You know, also, when you look at the politics of this, Danny, let's say that um, you know, there's an election in 2024. Let's say Joe Biden's not running for re-election. So now you have a wide open field of Democratic candidates, Kamala Harris and a whole bunch of hopefuls. Republicans obviously running on their side. And here you have this annual expansion of the child tax credit supposedly going to end at the end of 2025. Show me the number of hands that will go up in the air of Democrats who will say, I will I will let this expire at 2025. Conversely, Danny, show me a newly elected Republican president in 2025 who's going to let that go away as well, because the optics of killing that thing would just be terrible. So I think the point is you pass, you put things like this in the law, they're here to stay. Yeah. And this is something that uh, we, we, we did the, uh, the journal piece and actually the, the journal's editorial board had a, a, a related piece, a companion piece that talked about sort of how permanent these become. Um, and, right. and particularly with the child tax credit, you know, this has been a bipartisan thing where it began under Clinton, it was expanded under Bush, um, and then expanded again under Trump. Uh, and now, you know, the, uh, and one thing that in the American Rescue Plan, the, the stimulus act that they passed earlier this year, they had a one year expansion to it. And now Biden is proposing to extend it right. further. Um, so, you know, this is a bipartisan thing. You, you had Tom Cotton, you have Mitt Romney all proposing things like this. Um, and, and it's one thing we need to be careful about when we're talking about, say, the 2017 tax law is, you know, there were a lot of things in there we included because not necessarily because it was good tax policy, but because we thought it would get votes. And now what we're seeing is the good tax policy parts might be going away and we're left with the really expensive provisions uh, that are going to be hard to pay for in the future. Um, so we need to be a little more careful before including these type of uh, big political uh, vote getting type exercises in, in tax laws. Yeah, this seems familiar though in this regard. I, I have relatives who received money. Um, they, re they received COVID stimulus money. I think uh, relatives have received about $3,000 in total so far. Uh, these are relatives who are not poor by any means, Danny. They are middle class to upper middle class, and yet they're getting 3000 bucks from the government when neither one's been out of a job during COVID. And so this kind of strikes me as sort of the mission creep of getting into the middle class and just sort of sending government. And you guys outlined some of these. For example, two-parent households with two preschool-aged uh, pre children and incomes up to $130,000 will qualify for federal cash assistance for daycare. You know, the question is, do they need that cash? I guess I'll take it. But does somebody with a, you know, a two-income family with $130,000, especially if they're not living in New York, New Jersey, California, an expensive place to live, they're probably doing okay. Yeah, and and, that, and that's a, you know one point that we make over and over again in our in our larger paper is you know you go across all these different programs and nearly all of them aren't well targeted. There's only just a couple that have really actual means tests. And so when, right. when we're looking at incomes going up to one hundred thirty thousand, or in the case of the Affordable Care Act expansion, up to two hundred thousand dollars, you know these are people in the top ten percent of 
American household incomes. So uh, they're by no means poor. And, it, you know, again, it would be one thing if we were running surpluses and there was just a, a ton of money floating out there. But the reality is that these permanent programs are going to have to be paid for at some point. And eventually they're going to run out of money trying to tax higher income individuals. And then at that point, you know, middle income voters are going to be receiving benefits, but they're going to be paying a lot higher taxes. Now you're in DC and I'm not Danny, but is anybody really having a serious conversation about how to pay for things? Because every time I turn around, there's a new spending plan that has not a B, but a T attached to it as in trillions of dollars. Yeah, I, I, unfortunately not. You know, even among Republicans, uh, the, the Republicans have really adopted sort of a populist uh, sense to a lot of these things. Um, and, and so there there are a few people. And, and, and right now it's really hard for Republicans to be credible on it. Right. You, you had even before COVID, Republicans were uh, in the administration and, and in Congress were passing budgets that had trillion dollar deficits in them. Um, right. And so there's there's not a whole lot of credibility floating around D.C. But, you know, I, I do think in, in, in the near future. There are things that are coming up that will ultimately force people to to think a little bit more about it, right? Just over the summer, we have another debt ceiling debate coming up, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it expires uh, July 31st. The suspension of the debt ceiling, and so that's a time where you know Republicans, uh, particularly when under Obama, they use that as an opportunity to to try to exercise some fiscal restraint. But anything they do now is is going to lack some credibility. Right. Um, so the talk of reckonings is a good segue now to talk about Medicare, a column that you co-authored, two of your colleagues that appeared in The Hill. Uh, let's talk a bit about what is going on with the health of, uh, pun intended, of Medicare these days. <laughs> yeah. So, so Medicare uh, Part A, the, the part that pays for hospital insurance, that's, that's going to be uh, going insolvent according to the Congressional Budget Office in 2026. Uh, now, now, what the administration is proposing is, is, is one, to... Uh, redirect tax revenue to shore up the to shore up the HI trust fund. Um, and that has all sorts of political complications because the HI trust fund is designed to be uh, paid for by uh, payroll taxes. And the administration right. is sort of saying, well, no, not any longer. And, and that's actually a real fundamental change in the way that the politics of Medicare, that it's always been this earned right, right, that you paid into it and you're going to get something out. And now uh, the, what the administration is proposing, that's no longer going to be the case. But but that's only the start of what the administration is proposing. They 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 haven't actually spelled out the details too much, but they're also proposing to lower the Medicare eligibility age down to 60. And, and that was really the focus of our of our recent piece in our longer paper that, that was uh, related to it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what we point out in this piece um, is, one, it would cost a lot of money. It would add about $400 billion to federal deficits over 10 years. Right. And two, like all of these other provisions that we've talked about in the American Families Plan, is it's not well targeted, that the vast majority of people who are uh, going to be receiving assistance under, say, lowering the Medicare eligibility age to 60 already have health insurance, that only a small right. subset of these people did lack it. Um, and so you're going to get people who are, you know, uh, have current employer coverage or former retirees who already have health care now receiving uh, further government assistance. Um, so it's just another example of sort of these middle income uh, entitlement programs that are going to cost a lot of money in the long term. Okay, so if you borrow revenue, Danny, important to Medicare, that means you can't spend elsewhere. So whose ox do you gore if you take away revenue? <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing is, is they're claiming that they just double count it, right? So, so yeah. they say, well, no, we can, we can count it against the American Families Plan. We can say that we're paid for the American Families Plan is all shored up. And then we can also say that we're extending the life of the trust fund. And what it's really exposing is just how the, the trust fund accounting, what, what uh, conservatives have made the case for a long time, that the trust fund uh, doesn't really exist, that it's just an accounting fiction. Um, it's just a political thing. And, and what Democrats are doing is confirming that now is they're, they're showing that uh, this is just an accounting thing that they can just 
uh, magically change shift money from the general fund to over here and say that it's everything's fine. Um, but and that's where you know we really should be looking at the total deficits, and that's where it gets scary because we were running trillion dollar deficits before COVID. We added trillions of dollars just this past year, two, three, five trillion dollars, something like that. Uh, and then Biden is proposing an extra 1.3 trillion in the next 10 years. And that's before accounting for things like Medicare at 60. Okay. This might be a good point to explain to the audience actually what happens when you keep piling on debt like that, how the government, how the government handles it, how it papers <laughs> over the debt, how it pays off the interest on the debt. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's, it's a good question. Uh, and it's, it's not very clear at this moment, how they're going to do that. Um, you know, there, there's a concern that uh, um, you're, you'll have uh, the, the Fed monetize the debt. In other words, inflate away the debt. Um, and that doesn't seem too likely the, the Fed says they're not going to do that, although they seem a little bit more accommodating than they used to be. Um, so then the options are, uh, you know, raising taxes or cutting spending. And those are the only two options to pay back. And, there's this uh, there's this uh, growing belief among some that you know the debt today really doesn't matter too much because interest rates are lower than uh, the growth rate in the economy and as long as the economy is growing faster than the interest on the debt then this debt becomes more manageable over time and and our colleague here at Hoover John Cochran has a, a paper on it called R less than G um, and I re really recommend it it's a, it's a good paper that kind of goes through some of the issues with this theory but the biggest issue is we're continuing to run deficits. Every year the debt's growing because we're, we're spending more and more. Um, and so at some point, either bondholders get concerned that the government's gonna default and they're asked for higher interest rates, or uh, just because the Fed, as, as they try to keep inflation down, decide to increase interest rates, that drastically increases debt servicing on, on the debt. And you can think of the, the debts at, a, a, uh, at over 100% of GDP now, a one percentage point increase in interest rates is, is a one percentage point increase in government spending because they got to pay for that with higher interest rates. So um, the, the math is gory any way you look at it. And ultimately, the, the answer is going to be cut spending or raise taxes or more likely both. Right. If I were to give you an eye shade, a calculator and a big fat book of the federal budget and said, here, go to town, balance the budget. How would you balance the budget, Danny? And realistically, to get to a balanced budget, how many years are we looking at? So every, 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 look, every, everyone who runs for president is just one of the one of those formalities go through a president. I will balance the budget in X years. Usually it's four years conveniently and it never happens. But if you realistically were to take a whack at this, I mean, how would, how would you do this? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even the, the Trump administration had even given up on that, right? I think they, they went out to 10 or 15 years to balance the budget. And, right. you know, the first thing you do if you're doing this politically, you say, well, we're going to get higher economic growth. And, and, and growth helps uh, to some extent. Um, and, and so it's important to have good economic policies, but that's limited uh, because so much of the government budgets now is, is linked to economic growth. So things like Social Security, Medicare, these things tend to grow. The, the benefit levels grow with wages and wages tend to grow with the uh, growth rate in the economy. And so you end up not being able to dig yourself out of the hole with higher economic growth fully. So then you got to look at at spending cuts or tax increases. Um, and, and so if I'm doing it, I'm, I'm looking at spending cuts. And there's obviously two big areas where we're. Uh, we're spending a lot of money, and that's Social Security and government health care programs, uh, particularly Medicare. And, and in both cases, sort of like Biden's plan, these things aren't well targeted. Social Security benefits rise as incomes rise, uh, and, and Medicare benefits are very generous for people all across the income ladder. And so uh, if I'm making the cuts to these programs, I'm looking at ways to make them more progressive, that we, we should be looking for ways to cutting benefits for higher income individuals that that don't need the money that are that are using their social security check to pay for their you know vacation home or another vacation, 
Um, and, and that gets you some of the way there. Um, and so, but the reality is that it's, it's not something that happens quickly. It's something that happens over a long time. And fortunately, I don't think it's, the goal doesn't need to be a balanced budget. Uh, the, the goal needs to be a sustainable budget. And that means looking longer term. And so we can do things now to social security and Medicare where we're not actually physically cutting people's benefits, we're changing how these how those programs grow. So in the case of Social Security, uh, we're indexing benefits to prices instead of wages. So right now, prices and right now every retiree gets a higher benefit in real dollars than the previous retiree did. So we can do things like that to fix it. And particularly if we focus on making these programs more progressive, we can do it in a way to minimize the harm. Uh, does that get us all the way there? You know, the, the math is getting harder as we continue to spend more and more. All right. Is there anyone on the Hill brave enough to suggest one or two things, higher payroll taxes or changing eligibility? In other words, rather than me tapping into Social Security at 65, they're going to say, hey, guess what? Your life expectancy is probably going to be 75 to 80. Maybe you get it at age 67. Yeah, yeah. So so on the latter point, you know, I, I have seen a few congressmen who are uh, considering those ideas. Can't come up with any names off, off the top of my head. I, I, I don't think any of them are um, you know, the, 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 I don't think any of these bills would go anywhere. Uh, right. But you know, longer term, we should be thinking about these things. We should be articulating plans that that are pretty clear. Because, uh, you know, in the case of Social Security, the the trust the, that that trust fund that is increasingly being shown to be sort of fictional, uh, that's going insolvent in 2032, 2033. So uh, we should have plans ready to go to actually reform these ones. When it comes to things like increasing the retirement age, that doesn't get you as much as, as we'd hoped. We really do have to change how we are awarding benefits. Um, and we should be looking for ways to do that, that minimize harm for low-income individuals. Um, but it, it, the, the math is getting tougher and tougher on how you actually solve these problems. And uh, unfortunately, at the same time, the politics are getting worse and worse, where fewer uh, congressmen seem interested in this. And I can't come up with a U.S. senator that's actually really focused on these issues any longer. I know. So uh, you are you you are a long ways away from uh, facing these entitlements. That's the good news, I suppose. You're what a good, what, 25, 30 years away from collecting Medicare or Social I, Security? I'm within the budget window now. I'm in, within the long-term budget window now. So that is a different okay. uh, experience. Yeah. And then you have very young children who are, what, a good, what, 60 years away from dealing with this? What, what do you think these entitlements are going to look like, Danny, when you reach this threshold age? And then I'm very curious as your thoughts as to what you think is going to look like when your kids hit that age when they're in their mid sixties. Well, you know, I, I like to think we would have a more uh, sensible system that is taking care of uh, the old who are poor um, and otherwise uh, ensuring that other people have uh, adequately prepared for their retirement. Um, but you know, increasingly, I don't think politically that's, that's where we're going to end up. I think the reality is you're going to end up with much higher tax rates. And, and my son, Joey is going to be paying value added taxes and he's going to be paying much higher social insurance taxes. And, and the reason why I think that is, is you look to Europe and, and that's what Europe has, is, is Europe has a very generous social insurance system. They have uh, the, the type of system that, that the American Families Plan that Joe Biden is supporting is really, I mean, that, that's what it is. It's, it's paid family medical leave. It's, uh, you know, uh, universal child care. It's all those things, uh, you know, health care for all. Um, and, and those things cost a lot of money. And eventually we run out of money on the higher income and we end up taxing uh, middle income voters more. And so... Uh, that, that's probably my son's future is much higher taxes. You think your son's future would be some form of a privatized or partially privatized social security, or is it just hard to fathom the kind of political revolution it would take on the Hill to <laughs> bring that about? Because I remember when you know Bush brought that, 43 brought it up in his second term, and you know that was pretty yeah. much on arrival when he suggested it. The, the math is much harder now than it was when Bush was proposing it. Because when Bush was proposing it, the Social Security Trust Fund was running surpluses. That, right. that payroll taxes were, were more than what benefits were going out. 
So there was a way to, that you can kind of do the math to show that we could take a portion of those payroll taxes and shift it over to private accounts. Mm -hmm. um, but but now we're we're running deficits. The Social Security uh, Social Security Trust Fund is is going down every year. The the benefits are in excess of payroll taxes, and so now there's no money to privatize it. Um, and so, if anything, I, I think what you see is the administration starting to reconsider the way you know some some private accounts are set up. So the tax preferred retirement vehicles, particularly for you know, middle, upper middle income individuals might be getting smaller over time. You know, you, you look at say 401ks or things like that. And uh, there's been a push among some on the left to say, well, gee, you know, we, it doesn't make sense to be giving a big tax preference to high income individuals. So let's really cut it back. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there's, there's definitely a growing sense that the answer is let's become more dependent on government. And that's certainly what the administration is proposing. Yeah, Great Society, Danny, will be, let's see, I guess it's about 65 years, no, 55 years running right now, 1965 to, to 2021. Can you point to a program or two that has been taken away 55 years later? In other words, something Congress looked at and realized this ultimately was a bad idea? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the one clear example of this was welfare reform in, in 1996. Right. Uh, you know, you had the American, uh, the AFDC, um, uh, aid to dependent families with children, um, right. and that was, uh, or aid to families with dependent children, and that was a uh, a program that began under the the New Deal, and then was uh, greatly expanded under the Great Society. And, and in 1996, you really had a bipartisan effort among Republicans and Democrats that did something about it. Now, right. you know, I, I think that's it's a good template for looking forward of ways that we can probably improve the system. And and that was that we weren't too the welfare reform act I and mean, welfare reform wasn't too focused on just the fiscal costs, but they were also really focused on the incentives of these programs. And that's something where conservatives kind of lost the lost a little bit is, is we don't spend as much time talking about the incentives of some of these low income programs as we used to. Mm -hmm. And with welfare reform, the, the the example was look, we're keeping people out of the workforce, and this is terrible for the people who are on these programs in the long term. And so what we did is we replaced it with, with the temporary assistance for needy families. And, and that program was all geared towards getting people back in the workforce. So you look at the policies of the last year, and we, we've done a lot of things, Republicans supportive of a lot of them, that kept people out of the workforce. Uh, you know, you look at the expanded UI assistance, you look at a lot of things Biden's proposing now. Uh, and, and these are things that, you know, aren't, aren't terribly concerned about incentives to work and things like that. And, and so we really should be more focused on those things, if nothing else. Yeah, so welfare is interesting. Welfare comes uh, to be in the 1930s um, under FDR, and as I understand the history, Danny, it was dealing with a societal problem that men left their families. Women were left with children on their own. They didn't work. They needed to sub they needed some sort of subsidy. Along comes the government to help women. Um, and then in the 1960s, the focus is poverty. Uh, but you look at the focus now with uh, the American Families Plan, Danny, poverty does not apply to a family mm -hmm. with an income of $200,000, <laughs> not necessarily needing health insurance subsidies. So again, it seems a different mindset, whereas LBJ was about a war on poverty. This is not a war on poverty. Well, it, I think, you know, one, it, it's definitely politics. It's, uh, you know, a, 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 I forget the exact quote, but it's something like a poor program is, is a poor program, right? That, that, yeah, that, right. People aren't going to be supporting it if it doesn't affect them, right? So uh, to extend these benefits up the income ladder means that you're establishing a political constituency that is far more robust to political changes in the future. So, um, so I think that's part of it. Uh, it's also just a a a, um, a growing desire, a growing look to the federal government to answer for these problems. Um, but but I think what comes with that, you know, you look in the 1960s, uh, you know, with a lot of these policies, there was a paternalistic aspect to it, um, right? You had uh, a host of policies that said, well, you know, we need to provide food for people. So we're going to just give them SNAP, but, you know, we're going to drastically limit what people can do with that money. 
Um, and aid to dependent families was another example of this, where, you know, in the early 1960s, you had, you know, state governments going into people's homes to make sure there was not a man living there um, and, and things like that. And so you look at these policies today uh, and, and we see increased paternalism. We see, you know, we're going to provide universal child care, but that child or that we're going to provide universal daycare to three and four year olds. But that daycare or the preschool, actually, to, to those groups. Um, but that preschool is going to be designed by the federal government, and, and there's going to be certain policies that have to be met, and we're going to have certain credentials for, for teachers in those groups. And, um, you know, you start going down that road and you see uh, Washington, D.C. taking a larger and larger role in people's lives. That's destructive not only to, uh, you know, liberty, but also just to our, our economic dynamism and, and things like that. Yeah, I'd be very curious to see how it play out, Danny. For example, I have relatives who live in Greenville, South Carolina. I have a niece and a, and a nephew-in-law. They have two little boys who do daycare at a church in Greenville, South Carolina, what I imagine is a rather conservative church. Now, I think this couple makes more than the uh, <clears throat> the income levels outlined in the Biden plan. But the <laughs> idea of the federal government just dropping money at a, <laughs> a church in Greenville, South Carolina, without any strings attached, I don't think that's going to happen. No. Yeah, yeah. And you'll, you'll definitely see, uh, you know, increased involvement. Um, and, you know, you, you go, you go, program by program, community college support, um, uh, ACA. We already saw this with the Affordable Care Act of just how much the government gets involved in, in you know, the nuances of healthcare that, that traditionally were left up to the states uh, for healthcare regulations. So uh, you go issue by issue. And, and what you discover is that DC, when they spend the money, they're going to be asking for more of the, uh, the authority over what's said and done. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of reminded, I have an adage here. Uh, anytime the right comes up with an idea, Dan, it has freedom attached to it. I usually kind of reflexively push back because it's probably has nothing to do with freedom, like freedom fries uh, when, when France wouldn't go along with the invasion of Iraq. Uh, but conversely, when you, pro Amer you throw the word American into a plan as well, uh, I think it has more to do with American government than it does America itself. But, uh, you know, getting back to welfare for a second, Danny, um, I remember the retitling of welfare in the 1990s was TANF, uh, T-A-N-F, which stood for what? Temporary aid to needy families. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's kind of what Congress needs to consider here. The T in the end of this conversation: what is temporary and what's needy? Yeah, and and you know TANF, uh, without question, has been one of the more successful legislative efforts in the last thirty years. Uh, you know, you go back to what it actually did for for working mothers, and and it actually drastically improved work outcomes for those groups. Um, and so it is something that we should be looking back to and saying, how can we do that in, in policies today? And uh, you know, there, there are some policies that I think we can point to and say, you know, maybe that's a good idea. So, so one thing is the expansion of the earned income tax credit. Um, and, and one thing that the American Rescue Plan, which was passed last March, that's the, the, the newest stimulus act uh, did, and, and Biden is proposing continuing it, is extending benefits for, for low income uh, childless workers. Uh, that the EITC, what it does is for every dollar you earn, the government subsidizes it a little bit more. And so there's uh, typically good, uh, you know, work outcomes with that, particularly getting people into the workforce. There might be some disincentives once people enter the workforce to work more, but but most studies have shown that that this is a unambiguously good program in terms of getting people into the workforce. And so that's one example where you do have bipartisan support for, and it does make a lot of sense, and it doesn't cost too much. Uh, but that sort of conflicts with a lot of the other parts of these programs, which are really let's give benefits to everyone, let's make sure we give lots of benefits to uh, to families. Um, and, and, you know, we'll figure out how to pay for it later on. So, um, but, but if, if I were, if I were looking forward, I would say, you know, we, we should be looking for ways to, to streamline a lot of these programs into things that look more like the EITC, very well targeted, and at the same time, uh, focused uh, on work incentives. 
I'm reminded of the scene in Ghostbusters, Danny, where uh, the Ghostbusters are trying to convince the mayor of New York to let them do battle in the streets with uh, with the demons. And Bill Murray goes, "If we're wrong, we'll go to jail. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go along with you. We'll, you'll never see us again." And he goes, "But if we're right, he looks at the mayor. He goes, Lenny, you'll have saved the lives of millions of registered voters.'" <laughs> yeah, and and I mean the the problem is is you know it's 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 hard to look twenty years ahead of time and and I right. and say well you know we're we're doing something today that's going to really improve outcomes in, in the in the distant future, right? And I think more than ever, a typical politician has a very high discount rate, right? They're not looking past the next election, right. um, and it shows, and and our politics reflect that, unfortunately. Um, so you you need some. I don't want to say crisis, but you need something. You, you need a debt ceiling debate. You need trust fund insolvency. Uh, or, or if all else fails, you need executive leadership. Um, and that's something that has been lacking for, for a long time now on this issue, that Donald Trump wasn't concerned about deficits. He certainly wasn't concerned about entitlement spending. Joe Biden wasn't. Obama wasn't. Even, even you know, uh, 43 wasn't uh, terribly concerned about it, right? You had the expansion of the prescription drugs, uh, you had big farm bills that had massive expansions of, of food stamp assistance, things like that. So, you know, you, you, you go president by president and we really haven't had the executive leadership to get these things done. And that's what it's going to take more than uh, more than anything else. No, but you do have a crisis right now. At least you've had a crisis last year, which is called COVID. And COVID was thus justification for spending trillions in stimulus plans. And COVID's basically at the heart of this as well, I guess, because the pressure beyond Biden saying, look, we're now coming out of COVID. It's a unique moment in American history. We need to think boldly. If you want to be FDR, if you want to be LBJ, now is the time to seize the moment and do these things. But um, I guess as long as there is pandemic hanging over ahead, perhaps they will push along these fronts. But again, it's kind of the question. I guess the question, Danny, is who's going to push back on this? You can write the Wall Street Journal, um, but for any Republican on the Hill to push back, you're ultimately Debbie Downer. Yeah, no, I, it, it's a it's a tough political issue. Um, you know, I think Republicans are much better in the minority on this on this issue. Um, yeah. And so, you know, they're, they're, I think they're the the opportunity for actually pushing for fiscal restraints much stronger uh, now right. than it was, you know, two years ago. Um, and you're already seeing that with, with you know, the, with the, uh, the, the Republicans in Congress, you know, really kind of pushing back on some of the bigger infrastructure ideas and then also on uh, certainly pushing back on what the reconciliation bill is going to look like. Right. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, there, there are just procedures within Congress that allow Republicans more power. So you certainly have in the Senate, you know, opportunities to to really limit what gets included in a reconciliation bill um, and, and to push back and make sure that, you uh, you know, there's a political cost to any of this, um, but it's it's the, the the politics are bad, and there's no way around it. And unfortunately, I, I think the majority of voters they they like a government that spends a lot and doesn't tax much, uh, and that that makes a lot of sense in the short run. But uh, the long term, the, the math doesn't add up. But you can always have a vision, Danny. Is there any such thing as a Republican vision on, let's say, Medicare? I mean, we know there's an insolvency mm-hmm. issue coming by 2026. So, is there a Republican plan out there? Yeah, so so there there have been a number of Republican plans over the year. Paul Ryan was was a big proponent of, of a number of them. So the, the biggest one is premium support plans, which is essentially uh, let's let's replace the, this fee for service idea of Medicare, which is sort of a, this open ended entitlement that the government's going to pay for eighty percent of your outpatient costs, no matter how much outpatient costs you have, and you're going to pick up twenty percent. Um, uh, and, and instead shift to a one where the government says we're going to have you go out and buy private insurance plans. We're going to pay. Uh, for those insurance plans, and then and then the rest is is kind of left up to you. Um, and, and those plans have some, you know, there, there's some gimmicks in those plans uh, to be sure that in the, in the long term, the way we get savings out of those is we just assume premiums aren't going to rise as fast. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big assumption because that's not how healthcare has behaved over the long term. But at the same time, there's a lot of opportunities to uh, improve incentives within the healthcare system. So things like premium support are definitely the way forward uh, if we're concerned about you know, how, how fast Medicare is growing. Uh, and politically, though, that's more of a winner than some of the other ideas that, that, that right. we you know, even in Social Security, because premium support, that's very similar to what we have right now in Medicare Advantage, which is part C of Medicare, that, that actually people go out and buy private plans, the government pays a capitated amount to insurance companies, and, and then everything else is left between the, the, the individual and the, the insurer. And, and people like Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage is growing every year. The share of Medicare recipients getting it is, is rising. So uh, there, there are opportunities there, but whether or not that's a big money saver really depends on the assumptions that you throw into it and, and how, you know, uh, uh, willing congressmen are actually uh, uh, to follow through on those assumptions. Um, and that's a big, big if. That is a big if. If you drop Medicare down to 60, Danny, the good news, I guess, well, I guess is bad news because it means I'm old. I would qualify for it. Now, I have wonderful health care under a Stanford plan. I would not go to Medicare because I have mm-hmm. an option. I would go to Medicare if I lost my Stanford health care. Is there any evidence, Danny, that people would turn in their private plans for Medicare? You know, what we've seen is not too much. There are rules in place, particularly for large employers. So, you know, with you working at Stanford, uh, Stanford offers their employees health care. You can't, uh, it, it, you, you wouldn't be, um, Stanford couldn't shift all of their 60-year-olds and above onto Medicare. Right. Um, so for people with employment, it's not probably as big a deal. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a, a number of people who have sort of retirement plans. My, my father uh, was, was in the CalPER system. He was a, a state fire chief in California. And, and for him, when he, when he turned 60, and he was already retired, of course, because they have really generous pensions in California where he got to retire early. Um, for, for him, uh, it, it was, you know, uh, he wouldn't have saved any money going to this program. The people who would have saved money were CalPERS, because CalPERS would no longer have to be paying for all of his health care. Instead, the... Uh, the federal government would be picking up the tab. And, and there's a lot of people like that. I think in our numbers, what, what, what we estimated is somewhere around three to 4 million people have former uh, employer plans and they would all be shifted onto Medicare because their employer, their former employers would absolutely insist upon it because it would save them a lot of money. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely something where, but among Democrats, the, the, definitely the goal of expanding Medicare is they want to move towards a more single payer type system. And they see this as the first step to it. Um, so this is very different than Medicare for all, because Medicare for all, what like say Bernie Sanders was proposing, wasn't Medicare. It was it was different than Medicare, right. uh, where this would literally just be let's expand Medicare to more groups, uh, and that gets really expensive real quickly. And it's not clear at all whether or not uh, the the vast majority of people who are getting it are actually needing it. Yeah, have you ever, Danny, looked at how CalPERS is financed? And <laughs> not well, right? We we have our, our colleague here at Hoover, uh, Josh Rao, who has right. gone through and and looked at the budget math on that and. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's the it's the same math that the government, the federal government spending. The only difference is states have far fewer borrowing options. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's, I, CalPERS would no doubt love to have Medicare at 60 because that would save them a decent amount of money. Not enough to you know make them solvent by any by anyone's definition, although they they say they're solvent. But, uh, you know, if you if you do the math correctly, you know, it wouldn't be sufficient. But they would absolutely take this this as a big boon to their uh, to their balance sheet. It would, you know, one thing we haven't discussed, Danny, is a, a little provision that you and John Cogan pointed out. Uh, under the American Families Plan, workers were, are, are promised up to 12 weeks of federally financed wage subsidies for time off to care for newborns or sick relatives. Uh, I'm kind of curious as to how this works, especially in terms of sick relatives, uh, one, but also how does a workforce handle somebody disappearing for 12 weeks? 
Yeah, so it's really unclear. And this is one thing that we found throughout the throughout Biden's proposals is um, you, it, they didn't spell out many of the details. Uh, and I, you know, I worked on a presidential campaign and, and I understand kind of how that works is that you throw a lot of things against the wall. You're going to some district that has a big retiree population. So you say, oh, let's come up with a new proposal and you, you throw it. And, uh, and, and then typically you kind of just hope that people forgot about it or, you know, you, you just realize you're not going to get that in the budget. But the, the, this administration has taken all of their promises and thrown it in there. And so they had a list of promises with very few details. And, and the, the paid family medical leave one is certainly one of them, where at least publicly they haven't released what this will look like in the long term. Uh, they say the first year we're going to provide at least three days of I think it's, they, they're calling it uh, bereavement leave or something like that yeah. for everyone. Um, and then over the long term, we're going to expand it all the way up to 12, uh, 12 weeks by the end of the 10 year period. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there's real questions here what this means for, uh, you know, if I get paid family medical leave from my employer, am I still eligible for it? Um, you know, and, and that's that, those are all open in questions that we don't know the answer to. Uh, now, as far as the effect on work and things like that, you know, the paid family medical leave, you know, the, the hope is that, well, you know, this will uh, encourage people not to just quit their jobs or, you know, if they have a sick relative, it will give them more opportunities to. Uh, you know, um, to, to actually maintain their employment in some ways. They can just take a leave of absence. And, and that's one thing that throughout these programs, the administration keeps pointing to is that, you know, we can, we're actually helping people get in the workforce in some ways, because we're providing daycare assistance. We're doing all those things. And right. whether or not that will actually make a difference, you know, that, that remains to be seen. But when you say wage subsidy, Danny, does that mean the federal government's going to, if you need to, God forbid, to take 12 weeks off to take care of somebody in your family, does that mean the federal government's going to you know, pay dollar for dollar what you normally would make? Or is so, it going to so be pennies on the dollar? They've specified a particular rule up to, I think, $4,000 a, a month is what they're suggesting. And then it's going to be some share of your income that will decline as your income goes up. But mm-hmm. uh, it would still be a decent amount of money for, for a number of families. And, and you know, as you kind of alluded to earlier, a lot of these things, you know, it, the, the the fact that the federal government's doing it and they have a one size approach to it means that you can't reflect, you know, differences between states as much. Um, right. And so here, you know, they have some sort of function of it's going to be of your wages. Uh, but across these programs, there's this uh, uh, there's neglecting that the fact that there's massive costs of living differences between states. And with a lot of these programs, we're providing massive assistance to people in some states. So what we, we did the math on it and we found something like 60 percent of people in New Mexico. Uh, under 65 would be receiving assistance. Uh, and Mississippi, of course, would be another one where you have really high rates of assistance. And so, uh, you know, you, you start you start digging into these programs, uh, these proposals, and uh, you discover that they're, they're, they're not terribly well thought out, at least of now. And, and hopefully the administration has some really solid details somewhere, but right now we haven't seen them. Right. So uh, let's talk about the feasibility of this, actually seeing the light of day. It has to go through the House. It has to go through the Senate. It has to go through Bernie Sanders. Yeah, so so Bernie Sanders is is definitely in favor of all of these ideas. Incredibly, um, the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. Right? Yeah, yeah, which is a scary, scary thought, right? Um, and, and so the uh, what we've heard from rumors of what this reconciliation bill that's going to be coming out, it's mm-hmm. going to include Medicare at sixty. It's going to include nearly all of the American Families provision. Um, and so it's it's it it hits all the points there now. So it's not Sanders that I think causes the issue. It, it's it's the senator from West Virginia. Uh, mansion, you know, they, they, he's the one, and, and, and perhaps uh, Christian Cinema too. Um, you know, these are people who have have said that they are limited. They, they don't want to see a five trillion dollar reconciliation bill, um, and so that's going to be very limiting to what they can actually include in this. And uh, and even within reconciliation, even if they even if Mansion was totally on board with it, reconciliation is very limiting. Um, you know, if you know the rules of it, you know, for uh, you can you can increase deficits over the first ten years, but come year eleven. You can't add to deficits. 
um, you, uh, you're limited on what kind of provision you can, you can put in. You can only put in things that have a clear spending or tax effect. You can't touch social security. Um, and, and so it's, it's pretty limiting on what they can do with it. And, and one thing that we know, you know, if, if you, if you look at how these things might get scored, it's not clear at all whether or not they can actually use some of the tax savings that they're hoping for. So the big example of this is increased enforcement by the IRS. Um, and so what the, the administration says is if we spend $70 billion more on IRS enforcement over the next 10 years, we're going to get $270 billion in more revenue just because people end up not uh, evading their taxes as much. And, you know, we do some serious audits and, uh, and all of a sudden we end up with all this revenue. Well, for, for starters, the CBO doesn't think you're going to get that much money. The CBO thinks, you know, you're going to get $100 billion less than that. But then on top of that, CBO has made pretty clear that they won't include those savings in a score. And so for a reconciliation bill, all that matters is what CBO says will be the 10-year the deficits. And CBO is the one that kind of gets to, to judge that. And CBO says, according to their scoring rules, they probably can't actually take those $270 billion or $160 billion in savings. And so right there, the administration can't extend that out. And that drastically limits what you can actually include in a reconciliation bill come year 11. And so all these permanent provisions, they might, at least on paper, not be permanent. They might actually have to have sunset provisions just to get them past the Senate parliamentarian. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Senate can be just like watching uh, her deal with immigration. The Senate can be thinks this is a problem for President Harris to deal with in 2025. And it's <laughs> past. But, uh, so, Dan, we've gone through a lot of little small provisions. We're not small, but just uh, just, you know, minor provisions in terms of what's in the uh, overall bill. And we've talked about the government picking up the entire cost of community college tuition. We've talked about families earning one and a half time a state's median income, having government cover all daycare expenses above 7 percent family income for children under five. Uh, the 12 weeks of, um, of uh, federally financed wage subsidies, uh, different qualifications in terms of uh, preschoolers, uh, would you be able to health insurance subsidies? You look at all these provisions, Danny, which one is really the one that the average person out there should be circling and thinking, you know, OMG, well, oh my goodness. Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think the, 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 the child care one, particularly the dependent care subsidies, uh, it, these are ones where, you know, they're going so far up the income ladder, they're targeted right. to people like me, right? I have a, I have a three-year-old who's in daycare. I spend a lot of money on that daycare, um, but but you know, I'm certainly not the person that should be receiving federal assistance. And under this plan, you know, I, I might qualify for some of it. So, um, and, you know, it's it's ones like that where it really just defies imagination right. how the administration thinks this is good budgeting. Um, and you know, of course, you know, you look at other ones. The Affordable Care Act is probably another one where. Uh, you know, in some states, if you have high healthcare expenses in your state, it's not two hundred thousand dollars. It could be two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and you might qualify for subsidies. Um, wow. So the, the math is just uh, just incredible. And and when you still have an uninsured population, when you still have people in poverty, and yet we're proposing programs that go up the income ladder like this, uh, it it really defies you know the the idea that you know we we that the left wants a progressive tax system and wants the, these progressive systems in place. This is by no means progressive. Um, you know, it's 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 definitely hitting people like me and not people on the low income level, and that's what should be shocking to voters. Okay, and then if you were to pass this thing, the fiscal impact. How does the average citizen fiscally feel it? Yeah, so so in the short term, probably not much, right? For for the vast majority of people, this would be welfare improving to them. They're going to be receiving checks from the government. Um, and so it's a longer term thing, which is a lot harder to convince people that it actually matters. Because we've been saying for a long time now that eventually you're going to have to pay this back. And it's still true that eventually, you know, we're, we're going to have to uh, be paying higher taxes to fund, maybe not the previous borrowing, but certainly the, the current spending. Um, 
And so, you know, at some point, voters need to wake up to that reality. And I, I worry that they only wake up to it when they're actually pay, paying their value added tax and their, their payroll taxes have been doubled. Um, and until then, it's, it's, it's all just hypothetical. Well, I guess also it's a question when Washington wakes up to it, Danny. So if the question would be, is it a political reaction if there is just to be a huge tumult in Congress? And, you know, let's say like in 1994, uh, the party out of power running on a very strict contract, shall we say, which includes a lot of language about this. And it's very clear the voters are sending a message like the Tea Party a revolt in 2010. Or is it going to be triggered by, you know, a crisis with Medicare or Social Security? You know, there's just some sort of fiscal breakdown on the government. Yeah, well, well, you hope it's the former. You, you yes. hope you actually do get a wave uh, of people. But, uh, you know, I think the, the two elements of those the, those two uh, examples that you had, they didn't succeed, right? Um, you know, the, you had welfare reform, but that was a relatively small share of the budget. Uh, and, and the rest of the uh, entitlement state, Medicaid and programs like that, stayed just as they always were. Um, and, and you look in 2010 and uh, you know, you had two years of Republicans really pushing for fiscal restraint, and you had some on the left pushing for fiscal restraint. So you had what they called the the Budget Control Act of 2011 uh, that actually pushed through the sequester. And the goal of the sequester was we were going to, you know, propose some really draconian cuts to defense spending and, and to discretionary spending more generally. And then this would encourage everyone to get to the table and actually do something about entitlement programs. And the result was we just had draconian cuts to defense spending and to discretionary spending uh, because we couldn't come to a, an agreement on what the entitlement reforms needed to be. And so, um, so those are our best two examples. It's it's a scary world uh, going forward. So the the more likely outcome I think is is your your latter example or your latter alternative, which is you know we're gonna we're gonna need a fiscal crisis of some sort. Uh, to actually uh, motivate the uh, the problem enough, and and hopefully that's you know the trust funds going depleted lead some people to to care about it, and and hopefully it's not a, a default on the debt when Republicans and Democrats can't agree on a debt ceiling increase, uh, or bondholders get concerned that that perhaps their their lending isn't going to be paid back. Final question, Danny. Compared to back in 2015 and 2016, when you're advising Jeb Bush on budgets and taxes and anti-poverty programs, just briefly explain how the conversation has shifted. In other words, if you were to sit down with a presidential hopeful here in 2021 or 2022, how would your briefing papers look different? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Jeb was a unique candidate anyway. So I think no matter who the candidate would be, we, I would probably have a, a, a different looking brief. Um, it's just kind of a wonk's but, wonk, right? <laughs> yeah. He will wonk's wonk. He's a great guy. I could always talk about depreciation schedules with, with Governor Bush. Right. Uh, but, you know, for, for, um, for a politician today, you know, I, I think the, the, the motivating the problem has changed um, in, in 2015, 2016. Uh, you know, we could really focus on just, you know, we, we need to get the economy growing, right? You had five years, six years of, of really weak economic growth. And, uh, you know, our belief then was that if you had higher economic growth, a lot of these problems become much more manageable. And it's much more easy to do reforms if you got, you know, pretty high economic growth. Um, where now I think the answer is, you know, you, you really have to kind of be thinking through deeply what these reforms um, uh, uh, need to be in the long term. And so that's, you know, convincing an administration that, you know, this isn't something you lead with your platform, but you should have it in your back pocket that come 2026, Medicare might be going bankrupt and, and right. we need to be ready to go. But, uh, you know, as far as actually putting something out there in the public, um, you know, I think the answer is you, you keep your mouth shut and you, you focus on, uh, you know, small marginal changes that will get you votes and, and not some big fiscal reforms that will just cost you the primary or the election. 
Well, in 2016, Governor Bush lost out to a guy who just blindly dismissed entitlements. And this is what cult of personality can do for you. You can just be so large in your personality and outrageous. You can kind of walk past things. I just wonder, Danny, if a Republican, again, looking at the White House, could actually do what Trump did and just dismiss these things, or if there's just really an obligation here, for lack of a better word, an obligation to actually you know, pick up this conversation. I, you know, I, I think it's the, the I, I don't want to end on too depressing of a note, but yeah, I mean, I think the the Trump path seems a lot more viable than uh, than the path of focusing on on real substantive policy. And uh, my hope would be that, you know, you got smart people around whoever the next candidate is that actually cares deeply about these issues and can can convince the people uh, that the political team and, and ultimately uh, the, the next president that, you know, these things matter um, and, and we need to be ready to go. But uh uh, it, it, in the next, in the near future, I'm not terribly optimistic about anyone leading this, uh, this cause. Okay, Danny, any final thoughts, anything we missed out in this conversation? No, I'm a little disappointed. You didn't ask me about my Dodgers at all, but, uh, no, thanks for having me. I promised you we would not get into Trevor Bauer on this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, Appreciate they, it. So, okay. So a uh, quick question to close us out there at the white house the other day, Biden said he thinks they're going to the world series. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I, playoffs are always a crapshoot. I think there's a little question that they're the best team in baseball, but, you know, you get to the playoffs and, and you just hope for the best. Um, so uh, if I if I if I was a betting man, I would I would bet against my Dodgers getting to the playoffs or getting to the, the World Series just because the odds are always against any team, no matter how good they are. OK, but you still in your heart, you bleed Dodger blue and you passed it on to your son, right? Very much so. If he if he uh, if uh, he, he wants me to care for him in the future, he'll be a big Dodger fan. So if he wants me to pay for his college or anything like that. Very good. Hey, Danny, I enjoyed the conversation. Keep doing the great work you're doing on budgets and entitlements. I, I just, I'm fascinated by what you're doing. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover INST, at Hoover Inst, at Hoover INST. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the podcast. That's www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Danny Heil and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. Two columns, uh, two columns we've been talking about in this podcast. One uh, appeared on the Wall Street Journal on June the 28th. The title was Biden's Plan for an Entitlement Society, co-authored by Danny Heil and John Kogan. The other column also appeared appeared on June 28th in The Hill, and the title of that is Biden's Medicare Plan Spells Trouble for Trouble for the Whole System, and that is co-authored by Danny and his colleagues Lonnie Chen and Tom Church. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics, going to be talking about California this time. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.